Christmas, you've got to talk about Christmas, right? So, so I, uh, I brought props tonight. Usually you only do this for the kids' uh, object lesson, but I, you know, I mean, I thought you guys might enjoy. I brought, uh, I have two books with me tonight. Um, and these books, th- there are a uh, th- number of similarities between them. They are both children's books, first of all. And they are both uh, very beautifully illustrated. Uh, they're both beloved stories. Um, probably many of you, like me, read them to your children. Maybe not this exact edition or version, but the night before Christmas. And then, of course, the story of Jesus' birth to your kids. Um, and, and they are similar in other ways, too. They're about the same length, about the same amount of text in these two stories. They both are, interestingly enough, about the night before Christmas, Christmas Eve, the night uh, before the day that we celebrate as Christmas and different events that happen. They're, they're also similar in this respect, in that these stories, when you read them, are a little outside of the norm. And by that I mean magical, strange, interesting things happen. In, in this story, there are flying reindeer, as you know, and there's a, uh, a fat man who, in a red suit who breaks into people's homes, but he comes down the chimney. He doesn't take things, he leaves things. He brings gifts to good little girls and boys. Uh, breaking and entering, nonetheless, but he doesn't steal anything. So, uh, sort of magical things. It's a fun story. It's a great story. Nothing about it. Uh, this story also has some sort of that, that, that sort of air to it, um, there, there's no flying reindeer, but there is a, a star that leads people, uh, you know, to, to different locations. There are singing angels. There are shepherds in the field who are, who are led to, to different places. And it, it has some of that same kind of um, magical quality about it. And, and that's really what I, uh, what I want to talk about tonight. I, I, I think that... Uh, as you guys, uh, as, as we uh, as Christians all believe, of course, uh, one of these stories, uh, n- neither one of them begins with the words one time, but they both sort of feel like fairy tales. This one is, in a sense, a fairy tale. I mean, we don't call it that, but it's fictional. It's about things that didn't really take place. They didn't really happen. It's a story that someone made up. This one, on the other hand, is a true story. It's a real story. It's a story that deals with actual fictional events but sometimes, I think, when it's presented the way that it is, uh, and not just in a children's book, but so often when we look at the Christmas story, we, we sort of isolate it from the rest of the Bible, the rest of Scripture, and the historical context that it happened in. It begins to take that feel of kind of a, a fairy tale or a fictional tale, and I think, here's what I, I think has happened. And, and you can, you know, sort of weigh this on your own, but it seems to me that the, the story of Jesus' birth has been diluted and diminished to the point that it's really lost some of its meaning. And, and I think one of the reasons that that's happened is, of course, that on Christmas, we celebrate the birth of Jesus, but there's so much else that happens. And in our world today, there are so many traditions, so many 
ways we celebrate. And, and you guys understand that. You know all about the, the Christmas tree and the lights and, and, and the gifts. And, and we do that. Our family does that. Everybody does that. Uh, we all participate in a lot of those different traditional things. But I think the fact that there is so much that goes on has sort of diminished the story and the purpose and the reality of what happened when Jesus was born. And, and the other thing that I think has also caused that is that so very often we do. We take the Christmas story and we sort of separate it from its historical context. We separate it from the rest of the Bible and we kind of look at it as this isolated story. And when we look at it that way, it really is, it's, it's a nice, sweet, neat sort of little story, right? Uh, but that's not the whole story. It's only a, a part of the story. Uh, so tonight what I, I want to do is I want to try to bring some context. I want to look at the Christmas story in the context of the, the greater picture of Scripture as well as the context of the history that happened because the reality is this, that it's, it's not just um, that God became a person and was born as a baby. It's that God became a specific person and was born as Jesus at a specific time and a specific place in history. And it changed everything. And, that, and that's what I, I want to look at tonight. So my title is this, Silent Night, Holy Night, which is how we often sort of look at Christmas. And I love the carols. I love the song. But Silent Night, Holy Night is sort of this peaceful, quiet thing. Or... Radical regime change. And we're familiar with the term regime change uh, in recent history. We, we've seen this happen in countries. Regime changes when a, a government along with a leader, usually a dictator or despot of some sort, is overthrown, usually by force or by coup, uh, and that government is replaced by another government. So Christmas, was it a silent night, holy night, or was it a radical regime change. We're going to look at uh, actually the same text that was read in our candle reading tonight from the Gospel of Luke, but let's just pray first before we do that. Father, thank you. Uh, I, I pray you would open our hearts tonight to receive your word and to consider uh, the birth of your son, the life of your son, and the world-changing event that took place the universe-changing event that took place, uh, the power and the purpose behind the birth of Jesus in a manger. So open us to receive and uh, open us to hear your word tonight. Amen. I have help. Uh, I am going to read from uh, Luke chapter 2, and I'm reading from the TNIV, and you're welcome to read along with me. Not out loud, but you know what I mean. If you want to do it out loud, that's fine too. <clears throat> In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. 
She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel praising God and saying glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. So they hurried off and they found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. And on the eighth day, when it was time to circumcise the child, he was named Jesus, the name the angel had given to him before he was conceived. So we know that... uh, Mary and Joseph were traveling uh, back to Bethlehem for the purpose of this census. And the census in question was a tax census. Caesar was not really so interested in population, population growth, migration patterns, where people were moving to as he was just getting his money. He wanted to make sure that people paid their taxes, and so that was the purpose that they were called to go back to their hometown to do that. Caesar, Caesar Augustus, who was uh, in charge of the Roman government at the time, was the adopted grandson of Julius Caesar, and he was in process of carrying out a 300-year-old uh, dream uh, for Roman world domination. That dream had begun with uh, Alexander the Great, and he was Alexander the Great was a megalomaniac who was a power-hungry person who wanted to see the Roman Empire cover the entire world and and rule the world. And uh, his plan was to do that in the name of peace. And it's pretty simple, really. If you're in control, if you have no enemies and no one can disagree with you, then there's peace, right? It's It's a good plan on that level. And that was the plan. Uh... So, so the, the, uh, the Romans were, were really convinced that they were the highest and best that the world had to offer. In fact, they really believed that they were doing the rest of the world a favor by conquering them. That process was called Hellenization. It was to cause the entire world to adopt their culture and come under their control. Now, at the time that Jesus was born, that plan had not as of yet succeeded, but... In, in the three centuries preceding Caesar Augustus, they had made a lot of progress. There's a little picture of the Roman Empire at the time of Jesus' birth. And you can see there that the Roman Empire is huge. It covers vast portions of Europe, northern Africa, Arabia. I mean, it's, it's, it's really a, a very massive area. And all of that part of the world and all of the people living in that world were living under what was called Pax Romana or Roman peace at the time. Roman peace was really the propaganda of the Roman Empire, uh, it was a forced peace. It was, 
it worked this way, essentially. Uh, you, you know, the, the Roman Empire, the Roman government would come into a country, they would conquer that country, and then they would say, you submit to us or we kill everybody. That's how it works. So then there was peace. Uh, you submit to us or die. Those are your options. It was a, a very brutal overtaking of, of countries and governments and people. Any resistance whatsoever to, to that sort of uh, you know, forced uh, takeover was met with, with extreme force. They would just be, be, be wiped out. Now, in the process of, of this uh, taking over of smaller and weaker people, the sort of favorite uh, instrument of terror and torture was the uh, cross. The um, people who were living in those countries that were conquered were living under a total police state. You really were you know, conscripted to submit to us or die, and the Romans very often would use the cross as the tool for for terror and torture. Uh, for this reason, that death was not quick when you died on a cross. Death was slow, and painful, and and very agonizing. Uh, and not only was it agonizing and slow and painful for the person dying, but uh, as, as uh, you can imagine, equally slow, agonizing, and painful for anyone seeing the process take place. And so the roads of these countries would be lined with crosses, and anyone who resisted the Roman takeover would be hung on a cross and left there for people to see as a reminder that you don't want to mess with Rome. And those people would be hung on those crosses naked to further their humiliation they would again die this slow, painful death. Birds would come, and you can imagine uh, the impact that that would have on people living in those places at the time. It was Rome's way of just very clearly saying, don't mess with us. So this whole regime was really peace through terror. That's the way it worked. It's peace through terror. Uh, Caesar... Caesar Augustus there. Uh, Caesar was also a, what we would call today, a classic uh, megalomaniac. He was a power monger. He was also a military genius, though, incredibly uh, wise and smart uh, person who uh, brought Rome, the control of all of the Roman Empire, under one authority for the first time. Prior to his reign, uh, Rome had been a republic, but uh, Augustus brought all, all of the, the Republic under one authority under him and really set himself up as not only the ruler, but he began to set himself up as a god uh, over the people. And it's interesting reading historical accounts. Scholars today, biblical scholars and others, differ on whether or not Caesar really believed. Some, some people believe he, he really did think he was God. Others say, no, he didn't. That was just part of the propaganda. Either way, um, that's what was uh, sort of promoted and presented to the masses, is that Caesar was not only the ruler, but he was God. And so statues were built to him, and his image was put on coins. And, and uh, all, all, you know, people would sing songs to him, Hymn writers, uh, songwriters would write praise songs to Caesar. And uh, the people lived under really what was a, a massive 
cult. It was the cult of the empire. Uh, the Pax Romana, Roman peace. Caesar, uh, you know, was everything uh, for everyone. Now, for us, here's what we need to understand about that. Much of the language that we're familiar with today and that we use very commonly in reference to Jesus actually originated with Caesar. Um, uh, Caesar is Lord was, was a, um, a confession that was spoken anytime. It was like in Nazi Germany when people would say, Heil Hitler, if you were walking on the road and you passed a, a Roman soldier or a Roman official, you would say to them, Caesar is Lord. And you didn't want to not say that because to not say that would be a very, very bad thing. Uh, so, so that was a, a confession that was said commonly. Caesar is Lord. Um, uh, Caesar viewed himself and others viewed him as the son of a god. Uh, It's all weird. There was some uh, astronomer who saw a comet going across the sky and said the comet was Julius Caesar and he'd become a god. And so Caesar Augustus, as a son of Julius Caesar, was now the son of a god. So that was another term that was very often used of him. He was said to be, under this Pax Romana, the bringer of peace and goodwill. That was another title given to him. He was called at times by many people the savior of the world. His birth and his reign were announced as good news. And the word that was used uh, of Caesar's reign and birth and life was uh, euangelion, the same word that we translate in the Bible as gospel, good news. And it was good news, Caesar reigns. Um, So we today may not have that history. We're familiar with those terms in reference to Jesus. We apply all of those terms to Jesus. (coughs) At Christmas, this time of year, we talk a lot about the Prince of Peace, don't we? We Last week was the peace candle. Tonight was the joy. We lit the peace candle. And, and, and that's one of the things that we're reminded of at Christmas that I'm so thankful for, that Jesus really is the Prince of Peace. And in times of turmoil in our life and our world, uh, we can stop and we can say, you know, there is peace in him. And he, he is the, the Lord. He is our Savior. He is the Son of God. The shepherds were in the field and the angels said to them, we bring you good news. And so all of those terms are terms that we equate uh, with Jesus. Now, again, here, it also, at least to me, I don't know about you, interesting that another point at which uh, scholars differ a little bit, uh, they're not sure if that was intentional or not. Were the Christians really uh, saying, so to speak, in your face to the Roman government by using those references to Christ, not Caesar, or were they rather just what I would call um, prophetic coincidence? And by prophetic coincidence, I mean simply things that uh, God ordained, but man was not prepared to or, or planned on. Um, either way, whether the Christians were just saying in your face by using those terms, or whether it's just the way that God ordained it, it was subversive. Those were not just 
things that were said in worship of God, they were highly, highly politically charged statements and phrases and sentiments to be used. Highly, highly politically charged. Using those terms, any of those terms, in reference to Jesus in the first century um, was asking for trouble. You, you, were, you were really asking for trouble. Even, you remember uh, in Luke chapter 1, Mary discovers she's pregnant. She goes to visit uh, her cousin Elizabeth, and she writes a song. There's this Mary's song is there. We, we, uh, we read that sometimes in, in Christmas Eve services. And part of that song says, speaking of Jesus, he has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but lifted up the humble. Well, Caesar was the ruler on the throne. Mary, Mary was was writing, again, uh, prophetically uh, about things that were to happen through the life of Christ in the future, but she was writing them in the present tense. Um, so again, in the, in, in the first century Roman Empire, these things, this was revolutionary. And I don't mean revolutionary in, in, in the term of, like, you know, new thinking. I mean revolutionary in the, like, a revolution, okay? This was, these were politically charged. This was an overthrow. This was something coming against the status quo, coming against the government. Essentially, bottom line is this. For a Christian to say, Jesus is Lord, you were basically saying, Caesar is not. Whether you actually verbalize that or not. There's only one Lord. And if it's Jesus, it must not be Caesar. Caesar's kingdom, and uh, according to Isaiah, all other kingdoms would come to an end, but of his government, there would be no end. That language, during the first 300 years of Christianity, uh, not only could, but did, get you killed. To say Jesus is Lord, Jesus is the Son of God, to say Jesus is the one who brings peace, Jesus is the Savior of the world, is something that could get you killed. Following Augustus under the reign of Nero, Christians were so systematically slaughtered that, again, if you read Roman history, there were even though there were Roman historians who thought it was excessive and over the top. The... Christians, though, on the other hand, considered it to be an honor. Christians believed that if Jesus gave his life, then it glorified him if I give mine. And they were willing to die for their faith. That, in fact, is how they bore witness to Christ. The Greek word that is translated witness in our New Testament is actually the word martyr and we know a martyr of a martyr as someone who dies, who gives their life for their faith or for a cause. It didn't originally mean that. Originally a martyr was just one who gave testimony but over the first 300 years of Christianity so many people died in the course of giving their testimony that that word actually came, changed meaning. It actually became someone who dies for their faith. That's really, that's what it means in Revelation. The whole book of Revelation, by the way, is prophetically historical in its own right. That's what it means in Revelation when it says, 
we, we, we read this, they triumphed over him by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. That's what they really did. That's what really happened. They, they bore testimony by giving their lives just by saying Jesus is Lord and being killed, being sacrificed for, for that belief. Jesus was a slaughtered lamb. He waged war by laying down his life and first century Christians followed the Lamb wherever he goes. They were willing to do what he did in his name and give their lives. So, Silent Night, Holy Night, or Radical Regime Change. Here's, here's my point tonight, and this is what I wanted to bring to you know, our thinking a little bit, is that the Christmas story is not separated from the rest of Scripture and from the rest of life. The birth of Jesus was not this simple, quiet, precious thing. It was a powerful, radical, revolutionary overthrow of the world system. Not just the Roman Empire, but all the empires of the world. And so, my question is... What sort of celebration is fitting of that? How do we commemorate a king who came to change everything? How do we commemorate a a king who came to change the world system? And, you know, I, I know that it's the, you know, kind of the biggest holiday of the year. And I know that a lot of attention is given, and I'm, I'm thankful for that. But, but even as Christians, I'm not sure that all of our celebration is really with the full understanding of who Jesus was and what it really meant for him to be born as a human being and to come into this world. I look at Christmas today, and, and frankly... You know, I mean, and we all see it. You guys see it. I'm not telling you anything new. But, you know, the, the consumerism that takes place. I mean, Christmas drives the economy, okay? Can, can we just be straight about that? Um, you know, millions of people spend billions of dollars buying things for people that already have too much stuff. That's really what it comes down to. And there is at least a billion people who don't have the basic necessities of life. They don't, they don't have food, clean water, or shelter. And... All of this is done, all all that we do is done in the name of one who came and taught us to sacrifice. And so, I'm not necessarily advocating for anything other than for each of us in our own heart to wrestle with and consider what sort of celebration can really commemorate that. What, What would Jesus want to see in the lives of his followers to celebrate his birth. Now, in the past, here in, in our fellowship, it, a couple of years ago, we participated in something called Advent Conspiracy, and some of you have heard of that, and it's, a, it's, it's one of any number of movements out there today to sort of recapture the heart of Christmas, and it, it sort of goes along the lines of not spending as much, but, but simplifying and maybe taking some of the money you might spend otherwise and, and, and giving that to those in need. Um, 
And, and I'm blessed that there's an increasing number of those movements taking place out there today. Something I've heard about several times in the last couple of weeks uh, is there's different ways now. You know, you can, you can, you know, you can give a goat to a third world family. And it's, I just thought, the first time I heard I could buy a goat. Um, but a, a goat would ha- actually brings life to a, a family. It can bring milk and cheese and yogurt and other things. They, can, they use the wool. They can breed the goat. You know, so here's, I, I looked it up. I, I just put gift a goat, and it popped up. You know, w- f- through World Vision, you can buy a goat for 75 bucks. But if you're looking for a deal, through Mercy Corps, you can give a goat for 70 bucks. I'm just saying. <laughs> Although World Vision has other options, you can do a goat and two chickens for 100 bucks, or you can do five ducks for only 30 bucks. And again, I, I, I'm not saying everybody needs to do that. I know, you know, I, I know that many of you do a lot already, and it's, many of you support uh, orphans and children in children's homes in different places. I, I don't know how many of you support kids at Door of Faith, but I know that's a number of you do, and I know some of you support kids in Nicaragua, and I know some of you support kids in other places. Uh, I, you know, I know there's another movement out there today. There's, there's people who are choosing to completely just opt out of Christmas altogether. I'm just not going to do it. I'm not going to play the game anymore. And while I think it's an intriguing option, uh, I, I, I'm, again, I'm not advocating for any one of these particular things. I don't think it's one size fits all. I just wanted to share tonight the heart of who Christ really was, what really happened when he was born, to encourage each of you as a family to consider what type of celebration is fitting for that king. And maybe, maybe just make a little bit of change in what you do. I, I, I don't not buy your kids gifts. I mean, if you do that, that's going to be rough, right? Uh, but maybe as a family, buy a goat. You know what I mean? Maybe do something uh, different than you've done before and expand the horizons of what it means to celebrate the birth of Jesus, who, who really was a radical revolutionary, who was more than just uh, you know, a, a baby in a manger. He, he really did come to change the, the world system. And, and he came and invited us to be part of that revolution. And so to celebrate his birth, maybe we can become part of that revolution in, in a little bit greater way this year. So that's that. Why don't you guys stand? Brogan, would you come back up here for a moment and just maybe, dude, you, are, you play so sweet. Just, I'm just so happy to see you. I want to uh, take some time. We've got a few minutes left. We got done early tonight. And I, I just want to have opportunity for prayer. So I'm going to, as Brogan plays a little bit, I'm going to invite our worship team to come up front, or not our worship team, our, what do you call those folks? Ministry team, thank you. Ministry team to come on up to the front. And uh, I'm going to pray, and then I'll... Uh, invite you to come up for prayer. Lord, we uh, 